What's the bigger story, the battle over Ohio elections or the new federal investigation into First Energy? We're not quite sure. And so we used each as a lead story on a different platform today. We're talking about both on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, and I am with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon and Laura Johnston. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I, I can't remember a newsier Tuesday. We're also used to Thursdays being overloaded with news. But man, oh man, yesterday the stories <laughs> were just flying. And, and Jane was handling that. I had, my, I had my catcher's mitt out just like, here comes another one, here comes another one. Yeah, they did mostly all fall in your hands. So let's get to talking about them. Why is Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose suddenly on the hot seat after a Franklin County court decision on his refusal to let counties have more than one ballot drop box? Jane Cahoon, I had originally said I didn't think there was much that the state court could do about this. And after reading the judge's opinion, I, I'm wrong. <laughs> there is. You think so you're wrong? Is, really? I, yeah, I no, I think he made a very good case for why Frank LaRose has crossed the line here. So, so, and let's make clear at the front end, the judge did not order the Secretary of State to change his policy, although he said he might do so. But he did lay out a legal argument, very strongly arguing that the Secretary of State should not have done what he's done. So what is it? Right. Say? Well, this is uh, Judge Richard Fry, who's a Democrat uh, from Franklin County Common Police Court. He basically said LaRose has no legal basis for refusing to allow the multiple drop boxes per county. And as we know, he's ordered only one per county for the November election. But he said nothing in the law describes how counties should set up drop boxes for completed ballots, and nothing limits them to one per county. He said no statute says that delivery must occur with only one box per county. No statute says that delivery would be improper to a drop box controlled by a board and placed at a safe location separate and apart from the main board office. The statute is silent, and the secretary shouldn't be slipping words into the law, he said. Well, and and this all comes down to, there's an argument that counties like Cuyahoga with more than a million people it's unfair that there's only one compared to counties where there's, you know, 10,000 registered voters that that we do not have equality. He addressed that argument, basically giving credence to it. <laughs> right. Uh, he rejected he, the state attorneys who were who were saying, oh, if we have a different number of drop boxes per county, that's unequal treatment. And he's like, wait a minute, like if you want to change our whole government structure and have the exact same population and, you know area for each county, then then maybe it's unequal treatment. But that's not that's not how things are. He also very clearly, repeatedly called out LaRose saying LaRose has said that if he gets a legal ruling that we can have more than one, he won't stand in the way. I mean, it's repeated. I don't know how many times it comes up, but it was it was not an accident that he repeated this and said that he might order it. But he's leaving it to the secretary of state now with this legal opinion to do the right thing. And of course, what did LaRose do? <laughs> well, he's he's continuing to enforce his directive because, in fact, the judge did not order him to do this. So I think I slightly disagree with you on the implications of this, but, you know, maybe he, he will order him to do it. But I think LaRose is 
concerned about the other federal case on this issue, which has not been decided. So if he goes and decides not to enforce his directive, then who knows what's going to happen in the federal case. I think, I think he has an argument that we need to decide, you know, what we need to see, let this play out in the courts and see what happens. Well, although if he said, okay, I have a state court ruling that says I don't have any reason to limit this, so I'm not going to limit it, the federal case would be dismissed almost overnight because there's no longer uh, an argument to be made. Look, I I think Frank LaRose keeps proving he he does not want to make voting easier except for the postage question. He keeps trying to block it. I mean, when we, we discussed earlier this week, Cuyahoga County voted bipartisan their board of elections to have collection points where politically balanced teams would accept ballots from voters as they have in nursing homes and other places. And LaRose immediately forbade that. And so he's showing his true colors. He wants to make it harder for people to get their ballots in, especially in heavily Democratic counties like Cuyahoga and Franklin uh, this this ruling just keeps proving that out. Can, we'll have to see what the federal case does. Can I, can I ask a question? This is Laura Johnston. Um, I just wonder how much of these guys talk back and forth. Like, how much does LaRose talk to Yoast? Just like, and do they have like a conspiracy? Not a conspiracy. I don't want to say that. But like, <laughs> do they have like a a theme that they're like, we're just going to block voting wherever we can? Or I mean, is this a completely independent train of thought? Or is there a playbook? Well, well, I'm sure he has advisors and he I believe he has his own legal counsel telling him he still maintains that the law is clear that, you know, that there is no authority for him to do this. He still stands by that. And then and then you have these, you know, uh, counter arguments that are muddying everything up. The Ohio Republican Party came out really strongly and said, you know, this judge is is acting in a partisan manner and and the democrats like or come on larose just quit the theatrics and make things easier for voters look he has cover now if he wanted to make it easier this ruling gives him cover he's fighting it that tells you everything you need to know about where he stands on making it easier to vote we'll have to see what comes out of the federal ruling it's this week in the cle Is the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission the latest agency to investigate First Energy over its involvement in a $60 million bribery scheme to bail out nuclear plants and get other goodies from the Ohio legislature? Laura Johnston, the news just keeps getting worse and worse for First Energy, but it's a case of their own making. What happened yesterday? Yeah, so this investigation from the SEC seems to have begun soon after the federal grand jury indicted. Uh, former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and four allies on that $1.3 billion bailout bill for the two nuclear plants. So John Knigley actually found this in a separate federal lawsuit in which the company and and a consultant is suing a former employee. The scope of the examination is unclear. The SEC doesn't like publicize what it's doing. But the lawsuit kind of spells out that this guy, he's a Chardon man. He was hired by a company called Clear Salting in March. He was working on an audit of first energy processes and procedures. And then on July 30th, the day that Householder was indicted, he was fired. And after he was terminated, he apparently downloaded 57 files that contained, contained sensitive financial information regarding first energy. 
So it's really interesting. Yeah, but but the that case, I mean, who knows what comes of that case? The, right. The key thing is the SEC. Is right. Got it. Do do we know what? And we're working on a story about this today to explain it. But but do you have any idea what the outcome could be of an SEC investigation on something like this? I don't know what the outcome will be, but I it is the first hint. I mean, F, the first energy has not been charged in a criminal filing. So this is the first time that we can say um, with clarity that they're being, the company itself is being investigated. Although I think it's pretty clear (laughs) with what came out of the indictments that they're under investigation. Jane Cahoon, you know, we talk a lot about how this was a bailout for the nuclear plants, but the truth is first energy, once they got this, they cut that whole part of their business loose and aren't tied to it. What First Energy's big, big profit from HB6 is, is the decoupling of its, its structure, the, the, the guarantee they got from the legislature of exorbitant profits on the backs of ratepayers. Uh, we did a story this week about all of the goodies that were in this bill beyond the nuclear bailout that First Energy no longer profits from. What are some of them? Well, it, you mentioned the decoupling, which which that allows First Energy and other utilities to lock in a guaranteed le- um, level of ratepayer revenue for for years to come. You know, which uh, critics are not happy about at all. They say that that's going to allow them to charge ratepayers three hundred fifty five million more through twenty twenty four to to guarantee them a yearly revenue of nine hundred seventy eight million. So, but and, anyway. And the, and the sleaziest yeah. part of that is they pegged it to a year when we had record heat. And so it was their highest profit year. Right. And that's where it was marked. I mean, right. this is so anti the people of Ohio. I mean, it's one where the legislature kind of screwed the people of the state to help out this utility. It's kind of mind boggling. But now we understand there was a 60 million <laughs> bribery case that got it to happen. Right. But the other stuff in there, there were subsidies to coal and solar plants. Uh, they dismantled the state's green energy standards and um, they did something for county fairs to to cut their electric bills in half. Uh, it, it makes more midsize wind farms exempt from property taxes and puts them under local control, you know, a bunch of other things. But the, those are those are the main things The you know, the the ratepayers have already started last January paying a fee of roughly 58 cents per bill for residential customers uh, uh, for the subs- to subsidize these coal plants. So that that's already being paid now. Well, as the repeal of HB6 continues to get discussed, we're going to be putting a much bigger focus on that decoupling because that is the way First Energy is making millions and millions and millions of dollars. It is the way that Ohio residents are being harmed. And we can't let the legislators lose sight of that as they continue, they figure out a way to replace it. Uh, Andrew Tobias will be doing some work to figure out just what the dollars are over time that we're losing that First Energy is gaining because it's just not right. Um, We'll have to see how that plays out. It's this week in the CLE. Just how little do likely voters in Ohio think of Larry Householder, 
the disgraced and ousted former Ohio House Speaker. Jane Cahoon, it's great to quantify what a racketeering scandal can do to your (laughs) reputation. We have quantification of this. What is it? Yes, we do. We have a new poll and it was paid for by the Coalition to Restore Public Trust. So keep in mind, it is it is a group with an agenda. They are opposed to the nuclear energy bailout that, that Householder pushed through. And they are trying to pressure legislators to repeal House Bill 6, which was the bailout. But anyway, this poll of likely Ohio voters puts Householder's favorable rating at 7%. So <laughs> that's like less than uh, Rod Blagojevich got, you know, in Illinois when he got into trouble there, the famous corrupt uh, former governor of Illinois. So uh, anyway, it, it, the, this poll really was, I think, aimed at, as, as I said, this group's goal is to, to pressure lawmakers. So they also asked a bunch of questions about whether people favored a repeal or how it would influence their vote. And, A lot of them said, you know, they'd be more likely to vote for their state representative if they voted to repeal this this corrupt law. And they also, um, you know, uh, favored, you know, I think more than 60 percent of them would like the idea of a repeal or uh, an outright repeal or repeal and replacement. Well, you know, when this hit, what struck me is. 7% 7% of people are, are actually approving of this guy? And then it hit me. It must be First Energy employees. <laughs> who else would approve or of him? executives, yeah. Right. Or, I mean, and know, the coal industry still... employees. Hey, so... Chris, he's going to get reelected in Perry <laughs> County. They like him there, but he's the only name on the ballot. There's some write-ins challenging him. But, uh, you know, he's going to be re- reelected to his House seat. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see if he gets impeached. Well, it's a fun story. 7%. That's really bad. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Is Sherwin-Williams committed to building the full headquarters that it planned in Cleveland before the pandemic and the work-from-home trend? Laura Johnston, the news for downtown Cleveland for the last six months has been bad, bad, bad. Riots, broken windows, nobody working down there, a very dire future for Cleveland's income tax collections. So a lot of people have been wondering, with everybody working from home, would Sherwin-Williams cut back its big plans for the downtown headquarters and its big campus in Brexville? And we finally have an answer. Yeah, the answer is they are not going to cut back. They are going forward with their original plan. That's a $600 million investment, a 1 million square foot tower on Public Square, and then that research and development campus in Brexville, which I think they're calling Valor Acres and is going to be a whole development. Uh, They are pushing back the timeline. They say it'll be 2024 before they open. But the plan is to house 3,500 employees. They do not want people working from home. Uh, Here's what the chairman said. He said, We recognize the development, engagement, and sense of community our employees share has been essential to our success for more than 150 years and would be difficult to sustain over the long term with a remote-based workforce. At the risk of having every downtown proponent throw arrows (laughs) and rocks at me, if you were a stockholder of Sherwin-Williams, wouldn't you be asking questions now like, well, wait, why aren't you cutting back? Because work from home is here. Most industries that can are thinking about doing it permanently, don't you really require less of a footprint? Why are you still spending this money? 
Silence. They are, I am not a Sherwin-Williams stockholder. They are welcome to ask those questions. I, I guess they're just saying that their success is based on people being in the office and they don't want to work from home. And I mean, they, they are a successful company. It's not like they're flailing. So I guess they've got something going for them. Now, well, the interesting take would be the employees. Are they all on board with wanting to go back to the office? I mean, I know a couple of them and they have pushed back dates. They originally supposed to be in the office, I think, starting in August and they're not there yet. So they've pushed it right. back a little bit. So they're getting their work done with people at home. Well, it's good news for Cleveland. Cleveland could use a shot in the arm because it's going to lose millions and millions of income tax dollars going forward from all the people that will not be working downtown. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did Ohio legislators finally get their comeuppance for the legislation they passed last year to let wealthy residents of a Stark County suburb get out of the school district they share with less wealthy people? Jane Cahoon, this was the definition of sleazy. The legislature (laughs) stuck this into a bill that had nothing to do with it. it. I mean, it was a sneaky thing to do. You know, it it violated the whole principle of how we form our school districts. And I think everybody that looked at this, except for the people in that district, felt icky about it. So what happened? Well, they got slapped down by a federal judge. He struck down this law change that, as you said, they they slipped it into last year's 3,000 page state budget at the last minute without any public debate. And unfortunately, that's not something new. That happens quite frequently with the state budget. But this law was, uh, the law change was intended to allow the wealthy village of Hills and Dales in Stark County to transfer out of the plain local school districts, district. For, for years, they've, they've tried to join the nearby Jackson local schools w- without success. But, a federal judge, Michael Watson of the Southern District of Ohio, he's a he's a George W. Bush appointee, he ruled that this law change violated the Ohio Constitution's ban against legislators combining multiple unrelated topics into a single bill. It's better known as the single subject rule, which I think a lot of people believe is violated all the time. But <laughs> <laughs> this went to court and was challenged. So the judge basically said this provision on the school transfers had no relation to the state budget, and it appeared to be designed to avoid public deba- debate on a controversial topic. So, you know what surprised me about the ruling, though, is that it's in federal court, mm-hmm. and the ruling felt very much like it was addressing state court issues. In federal yeah, because court, it's based on the Ohio, the single subject rule is in the Ohio Constitution. But I think there was an equity issue here too. So I'm not sure legally how that played into this. But, you know, the reason they weren't able to switch school districts before is because the state education officials and the and the plain local schools successfully argued that this was going to harm students because it would increase racial and socioeconomic isolation and, as well as financially hurt the plain schools and they said it it would violate the equal protection rights of their students by increasing racial segregation and economic inequality so that to me feels more like a a federal issue yeah, that that clearly is a federal issue. And if he had made the ruling solely on that, then complete standing to do so. I just think that by ruling on 
state constitutional issues, you open yourself up to an appeal. Uh, you know, on the other hand, the legislature should stop doing this kind of stuff. They did the same thing. They tried to do a similar kind of thing in Cuyahoga County with uh, Gates Mills and the Orange Hunting, Hunting that, Valley, uh, I think it was, wasn't I'm it? Sorry, Hunting Valley. And the rich people of Hunting Valley were trying to get out of paying taxes to their school district. To Orange, like a, I believe. Yeah, and the and this legislature was trying to help them. It was an obscenity. They need to stop doing this. It's not, it's not really the legislature's job to help the rich get richer and the right. poor get poorer. I mean, it came, it came out in this case that some influential people from Hills and Dales, including W.R. Timken, the politically connected ex-chairman of the Timken Company, was was one of the people wrote a letter to lawmakers, you know, saying, "Oh, why don't you do this for us?" So. Which is why I called it sleazy in my opening <laughs> question. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson really just overhaul his entire health department in the middle of a pandemic, the worst public health crisis in more than a century? Laura Johnston, we've talked repeatedly on this podcast about how our public health system is just broken. We have the secrecy, the ridiculous secrecy of the Cuyahoga Health Board. We have the ridiculous situation on the state level where they have thousands of cases in a computer database that they can't search or collate. And now the city health department is being completely overhauled now, right now. What's the deal? Well, I guess they didn't feel like they could wait because there's an investigation that found, quote, several areas of concern indicating negligence, which must be immediately addressed. So this investigation was launched in July. It looked at the department's operating structure and culture, employee morale, hiring and attrition, and the loss of about $1.5 million in state money for HIV and AIDS programming. So they found problems there. And it wasn't discrimination based on race or gender or anything specific. They basically said that everyone was treated unfairly due to the lack of skill in supervising employees, which is pretty damning. So uh, the a health commissioner and the lead epidemiologist are fe- facing pre-disciplinary hearings. The re- report does not make it clear why. And Jackson, of course, did not answer any questions about this. But they just said that the leadership uh, made decisions which were profoundly and severely damaging, counterproductive. So they're going to reorganize. They're putting um, the director, Merle Gordon, has been reassigned to a newly created position. And the com- commissioner of the division is now the interim director. Yeah, yeah, you know, just so people are aware, the, the city health department handles all of the COVID numbers and the, and the, uh, the coping with it in the city. And then the Cuyahoga County health board deals with the suburbs. It's, a, it's which a you weird. could argue is really not a great system. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's very stupid. confusing. We have two different standards of public information. We have two, I mean, it's just, it's a mess, but two different lists that come out every day. Yeah. But this is the, the health board that is charged with dealing with COVID-19 and it's just in complete disarray. I, I mean, you know, we're raising the question is, is, do we, is the argument so strong now that we just need to overhaul our public health system? Do we need these local health boards? Should it be a statewide health board that is answerable to the people? Because right now it's not. I mean, it, it, you know, nobody answers to anybody. Uh, I was stunned by this. I mean, it's just a, uh, uh, an indictment of the whole system. And coming now, I, it's just like, wow, you're 
changing the tires while you're going 60 miles an hour down the highway, no good can come of this. And you're right. They didn't answer any questions. They didn't really address how they're going to deal with COVID going forward. They just keep putting out their daily releases. Uh, we'll be doing some follow-up, obviously, right? Yes, absolutely. Still looking into this one. Okay, it's this week in the CLE. Should we be alarmed by the very high number of coronavirus deaths that Governor Mike DeWine reported Tuesday? Jane, that number was eye-popping. What's going on here? Yeah, we had 87 deaths reported on Tuesday uh, from the Ohio Department of Health. But, you know, well, this was the highest number of deaths reported in one day since early May, and it and it's the third highest number since the beginning of the whole pandemic. So that was eye popping and possibly alarming. But you know the way these deaths are reported is they they tend to come in clusters and they lag. I mean, it doesn't mean eighty seven people died on on Monday or Tuesday or whatever. It they they're spread out and they and they kind of lag. So. As I said, they tend to be reported in clusters. So I really think we need to, um, you know, see a little more of a trend line here or, you know, watch the numbers over another week or two to see, you know. But the sad truth is that we've lost um, more than 4,500 Ohioans to this virus. And we've had nearly 140,000 people suffer from from it. So it's, um, you know, it's sobering. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I heard the governor and he said, look, don't read too much into one day because of the way it's reported. We should keep watching the, the 21 day average. But, you know, if we get two or three or four days in a row with numbers that high, something's going on here. You know, is it the return yeah. to school? What? But something has caused it. So something to keep our eye on. But, man, that number did jump out at, at us yesterday. It's this week in the CLE. With all the corruption talk swirling around First Energy and utilities in Ohio, is the Ohio Power Siting Board really going to stand behind its inexplicable decision that is killing the proposed offshore Lake Erie wind farm? Jane Cahoon, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised by this. I thought that anybody involved in regulating utilities would be so afraid of the scrutiny they're getting right now that they would do the right thing. But apparently they're not going to do the right thing. <laughs> Afraid not, Chris. No, it, it appears they are on Thursday, at least according to a draft ruling that Jeremy Pelzer got a hold of, that they are they're going to reject pleas from both the supporters and the opponents of the Icebreaker Wind Project, uh, uh, which is the um, the nation's first freshwater offshore wind farm in Lake Erie. Uh, anyway, both supporters and opponents had pleaded with the board to reconsider their ruling in May, and and that ruling approved the project, but it put these restrictions on it that the supporters say are a poison pill that's that's going to doom the project. They they required that the turbine blades can't move at night between March first and November first because they want to protect uh, birds and bats, but. The, the backers say that's just going to make it economically infeasible and and it's going to kill it. So and the opponents, um, you know, they wanted the board to just outright reject it because they're concerned that the turbines would be, you know, a hazard to birds and that it would open the door to to turbines popping us, 
popping up elsewhere uh, around Lake Erie. So it's, um, yeah, they're just saying, well, sorry about that. (laughs) And there there is a tie, right? Because the head of the signing board is the head of the PUCO that gives all the sweetheart deals to First Energy, right? Right. This uh, this is Sam Randazzo. He is the chair of the Power Sighting Board and, as you mentioned, the PUCO. And he's been under criticism and scrutiny because people say he's too cozy with First Energy. There are connections there. And he's regarded as a longtime opponent of renewable energy. So he he wrote a separate draft concurring opinion that noted all the passion that was on both sides of this argument. And, but he wrote, but passion is no substitute for evidence or reasoning properly aligned with the facts and the law. And um, this got into a lot of details about whether they were obligated to take the recommendations of their staff and a, a lot of, you know, back and forth that I, that I won't go into, but yeah. So he's, as I said, he's regarded as like an enemy of renewables. So you know, it, it kind of raises the issue of a, a predetermined result here, too, because, you know, it looks like they basically decided this before they even meet on Thursday. You know, one of the lawmakers who's a non-voting member told Jeremy, like, it's standard for this board to decide ahead of time behind closed doors what they're going to do. And so Jeremy asked their spokesman about it. And he said, doesn't this, you know, run afoul of open meeting laws? And the spokesman yeah. said that, you know, hey, this is only a draft and, you know, the board members are going to deliberate on it during the public meeting, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, right. We'll see. <laughs> I just feel this is Laura Johnston. I feel like just this was a decision that made nobody happy. And the thing is, it's not just about those six wind turbines, right? Like the idea is that this could open the door for the whole farm. And I think that's why people have been so passionate about it, that it's not just this uh, one project to see how it goes. And I know everybody on the lake has been talking about this for a very long time. Um, voters really don't want to see it. So the thing is, if you want to kill it, be open yeah. about killing yeah. it. List the reasons. There are people that are arguing they're bad. They're bad for the environment. And, you know, when they die, they just they, they sit out there and they're bad for for the view. But but they didn't do that. They they basically approved it by killing, you know. While yeah, it's just it. a weird way of of not and, deciding. Yeah, it was it was not the way to to come at it. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Are state or local governments in Ohio going to dash the dreams of children everywhere by outlawing Halloween? Laura Johnston, I hear from people. They they really don't want to lose Halloween. The governor says he'll eventually put out some kind of standards, which you know, he should put those out now. People are pointing for it now. But what what's going on with this? We did some checking are kids going to have their hopes and dreams dashed? No, I don't think so. I think that they're going to find a way to work around it, at least in most communities. So a lot of them, like you said, are waiting, but there are some that are definitely going ahead. And Medina, um, Mayor Dennis Hanwell said the city's going to do it to take precautions like mask wearing, staying in small groups, social distancing. Obviously, the choice of participation is going to be up to parents and the families to decide whether they feel it safe. But some places have been really encouragingly creative. Like in Mayfield, the village is using their Greenway Trail. Families can register in advance for 10-minute intervals to go through a haunted forest and go through eight stations to receive a bag of candy and go to a pumpkin patch. So they're really trying to to think this through. The Lorain County Board of Health even put out um, a list of recommendations, and they had a 
a plan for a candy slide so that you don't have to have kids reaching in the bowl and you don't have to put your hand in their bag. Like you can create this giant straw that will funnel it into a kid's bag. So um, the Cleveland Clinic has put out safety recommendations. So I do feel like there is an acknowledgement that this is a fun outdoor activity and it can be made safe rather than just saying, yep, no way we can't do it. So, and it is on a Saturday. So people have time to prepare. And apparently it's the time change day too. So you're going to have an extra hour to sleep that night. So it's like the world is conspiring to, to make Halloween happen. Well, it get Oh, but, but right. It's the next morning. We'll still right. have daylight for Halloween. Yeah. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Okay, so we don't need Chris to go long. We just need really hot news stories to keep us talking. <laughs> Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Laura. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We just got note that the Big Ten will play football starting in October. 